This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome again to the Debunking Economics Podcast. Italian banks are on the verge of collapse. Matteo Renzi had a referendum, of course, with the aim of centralizing power, supposedly that he could tackle that issue and the, and the general state of the Italian economy, but he failed on both counts. And the banks over there are in trouble. Monte di Paschi, the world's oldest bike, uh, bank, is in particular trouble and could face a government bailout. So what's getting banks into so much trouble? It's not just Italy. Uh, all around the world, it seems there are... Uh, whiffs of trouble in the banking sector. So is it like the US subprime crisis all over again? Have we learned nothing from 2007 and 2008? Well, let's talk to Steve Keen about this one. So Steve, I mean, are we facing another banking crash? And, and if so, could it happen soon? Yeah, well, there's there's plenty of room for financial crises around the world. That's the topic of my next book, Can We Avoid Another Financial Crisis? Mm. Slightly longer than one word, uh, but it identifies uh, between nine and 17 countries that I think are going to have a very similar crisis to the global financial crisis in each of their national economies. And then when you add the national economies up, that totals to uh, slightly larger than the US economy, which took us down, of course, in 2008. So we are going to face crises in those in those countries, countries like uh, China, uh, and at one extreme in terms of its political organisation, and uh, Canada, Norway, Sweden, uh, quite a few others at the other extreme and in each of those cases yes when when you have a downturn like the one we had back in 2008 that causes banks to go bankrupt for a very simple reason uh related to in that wonderful topic accountants love of double entry bookkeeping right and that is that uh if you if you look at how a bank organizes itself because we've got assets liabilities and equity and if you its assets will include things like reserves which are basically uh, non-income earning but loans shares etc etc and then on the liability side the fundamental liability they have is the liability of their depositors and then finally if you subtract the liability that owe to their depositors uh, from the value of the assets you get the equity of the bank now the equity is this is the, the thing which conventional economics ignores but the equity is absolutely essential that's effectively what banks lever up uh, which gives them a capacity to create money and if you think of a bank which is in very conservative times and go back to a jimmy stewart style bank it might have a ratio of 10 to 1 between its equity and its loan book and that means effectively 10 percent of its loans would need to collapse in value or the assets it has would need to fall in value by more than 10 percent before it got wiped out because a bank cannot operate with negative equity right but banks of course are always going to try and push can, they're always going to try and push for profit aren't they so they're going to you know they're going to sort of try and loan as much yeah. as as much as they possibly can and wasn't that part of the problem uh, in america that uh, they were buffering that limit they didn't want to take their risks so they had this idea of the securitization of loans so they basically said well oh. so, somebody else can take the risk for yeah, us yeah i mean what they, what they ended up doing was uh, saying we're going to securitize loans that then therefore get them off the books and therefore with them taken off the books uh we then have a we've dropped our, our, le our leverage effectively we 
can now continue doing more lending and we'll ensure this and we'll take out contracts, you know, which are uh, contracts, uh, collateralised debt obligations and, and things like that. So half of them are bets that other companies are not going to fold with, with other companies. Of course, the entire thing is utterly fragile. But the, the real, the, the reason why you get a bank crashes is that if you have a bank operating in a conservative world where it's got like a 10 to 1 ratio between its equity and its loans, then it takes a 10% fall in the value of the assets before it's got negative equity. Because if you think about the asset side, if the assets fall by 10%, your liabilities don't change. You still have the same amount of money in depositors. So when you subtract those liabilities from the assets, rather than getting a positive residue, which is the equity, net equity of the bank, you get a negative one, and at that stage you've got a fold. Now, the reason we had such drama back in 2008, one of the many reasons, but the reason why we saw so many bank failures was organisations like Lerman's had leave it up not 10 to 1 ratios, but 30 to 1 ratios. Mm. And then at the same time, the asset side was stuffed with all the stuff that actually they'd got the stuff off their books, but they'd bought other people's. It's just, you know, create. Uh, if, you ever, if you ever seen that wonderful movie, The Margin Call, yeah. um, the uh, Stevens, uh, the, uh, the uh, Kevin Spacey character once says that they're telling the guy who Kevin Spacey operates the trading desk and he's talking to the guy who owns the company and saying, We've always said we've got to be on the buy and the sell side. You know, we can't just be one side or the other. And he's then told just to sell. And what then? What happens, of course, is they've bought all this toxic stuff as well as selling it. Now, when there's a when people realise this stuff was truly toxic, and rather than triple A, it was triple Z uh, quality, and the prices dropped, then virtually instantly those companies were bankrupt. Yeah, and that's why you have a financial crisis, uh, a banking crisis, when there's a, a fall in the value of assets. So, and those assets very often, uh, and certainly were the case in the United States, were houses, were sub subprime houses, and is isn't that mm. also part of the problem? There's every incentive for a bank to loan for a house because they, you know, if, if everything goes pear-shaped, uh, they've still got the house. It, it might be worth a little less, but it's 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 not worth nothing at all. Whereas if you loan to a business and the business collapses, uh, it's it's pretty much worthless. And that's the problem. We actually, we, what we really need lending to is lending to businesses, for, you know, working capital for companies and for investment funds. Uh, for them and for entrepreneurs as well and the banking system is uniquely badly situated to do what we uniquely need it to achieve so uh, in that situation they're, they're far more likely to go for collateral uh, backed lending and they're like you lend against an asset and that's what actually gives us asset bubbles because mm. the valuation of the asset depends upon the leverage that's been applied to buy it economic theory too that's not so therefore it actually almost proves my case for me um, and I've done the mathematics on this and done the econometrics as well, leverage drives house prices. So as banks offer um, loans to people to buy houses, it drives up the value of the collateral the bank has backed the loan with and justifies more loans. So you get what's called, a, the engineers call a positive feedback process, which leads to a breakdown. And that's what we've been through numerous times. Now, what we're coming up to, I think, is a very different crisis because uh, clearly, as I said, I've had the fight about between nine and 17 countries that I think are going to have a financial crisis in the next three years. And is it? Are, and are they related yeah. again to? I mean, they, you say they're different, but are they, are they still related to the fact that uh, we've got? Well, I guess how many of them are related to houses and, and rising asset prices uh, in, yeah, in the housing okay. sector? Clearly, obvious cases in that case. There's Canada and Australia. Mm. Now, they're screamingly obvious, and Australia's got the biggest level of household debt on the planet, and the second highest level ever recorded uh, in history. So that's a classically totally levered economy. Canada's very much the same. So when the bubble, look, but the bubble will be started 
not by you know, unemployment rising, people can't, people can't pay their houses. It's actually the fall in the value of the houses that triggers the whole thing because that's the very first thing to go down is the valuation of levered assets. Right, but and, is that going to happen? Because uh, yeah. isn't it the case that, you know, that when, uh, when people are getting a little bit cagey about the value of houses, they stop putting them on the market so that, uh, that, that reduces and people stop buying, but then it, it also reduces supply uh, and uh, reduced supply pushes prices up or at least maintains and, them. And that's what people are thinking, and that's why they're going to be wrong, because what they're leaving out of the equation there is the role of credit and demand in the economy in total. Mm. Because if that happens, uh, as you said, there's less the supply and demand factors might actually help stabilise to some extent. But what happens is the flow of credit that actually buys those houses leaves the economy. And when that flow of credit is equivalent, as it has been for most countries that had a crisis, to at least 15% of GDP then suddenly that much demand disappearing gives you an economic crisis. Right. And it happens when the rate, it happens ahead of when people expect because it's not the level of mortgage debt that matters or even its rate of change. It's its acceleration. And that turns around before the rate of change peaks out and well before you get to peak levels of, of household debt. So the crisis in America began well before mortgage debt peaked there. And the same thing will apply in those countries that have, have got the... Um, levered situation now, which is that the predominant ones are Canada, Australia, uh, um, uh, South Korea, Norway, and China. Mm. So explain to me then the situation when, say, let's look at Australia, for example, because that's a, one we know, we, a country we know and love. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the, pop, the, the, the house prices, I don't know, say they fall by 30% in, uh, in, in Australia. Um, does it matter too much? There will be a lot of people who all of a sudden have got uh, has the worth a lot less. They feel less well off. But what's the material impact? What are the processes that could then lead to a bank collapse? Well, the basic process uh, is that the credit demand evaporates in the economy. And this is when you have a economy like Australia, which is dependent upon rising leverage, driving up house prices, and the rising leverage itself. Many people borrow money into existence and spend it into the economy, right. and that's a large part of the turnover. When that disappears, you can actually have GDP continuing to rise and total demand falls. And this is I'm going to stretch people's brains a bit here and try to give a numerical example over the radio. Let's see how that goes down. <laughs> okay. But if you, the total demand in the economy is the sum of the turnover of existing money plus new, uh, new money being created by bank loans. Yeah. So if you have an economy which is, let's say, you've got an economy worth a trillion dollars and it's growing at 10% per annum, and it has a debt level of 50% of GDP, and that's growing at 20% per annum, that gives you total demand in that economy is going to be the sum of the GDP. I think this is it's, there's some double counting going on here, but I'm imagining that GDP is completely financed by turnover of existing money and asset purchases are totally financed by loans. In that situation, you can add the two together. So your total demand is going to be a trillion dollars from turnover of existing money plus 20% of half a billion, which is $100 billion. So your total demand is going to be $1.1 trillion. If the next year the rate of growth of debt simply slows down to being the same as the rate of growth of the GDP, in other words, it doesn't have to go to zero, uh, that, that next year your total demand is going to be $1.1 trillion from the GDP from turnover of existing money, because that's growing 10%. Um, it's going to be then 10% of $600 billion, which is $60 billion. So your total demand comes up being $1.16 trillion, which is $60 billion more than the year before. So you've still got rising demand in an economy with a low level of private debt like that. If you take a country like Australia or Canada, where the debt level is over 200% of GDP, then same example, 
start with a trillion dollars. Your debt level is two trillion. 20% of two trillion is $400 billion. So your total demand in the first year is 1.4 trillion. Next year, if you have the, growth, the rate of growth of debt slows down, just doing the same as GDP, then your GDP demand is going to be 1.1 trillion. It's grown 10%. Your demand from credit is going to be 10% of 2.4 trillion, which is $240 billion. You add them together, that's $1.34 trillion. That's $60 billion less than the year before. Right. But this is the catch. It just simply has to slow down growing rapidly. But and that's what brings the entire economy down. Right. But before that happens, don't people moderate their behavior a little bit? So, for example, we had the, the governor of the Reserve Bank in Australia saying that one of the good things, and accepting the fact that, you know, house prices are concerned, he did say in a, in a, in a recent uh, uh, press uh, meeting that one of the good things is that people aren't, uh, aren't borrowing against their, their houses as much. In fact, that's dropped right down. So people, it's as though people have realized that they have uh, mortgaged themselves to the hilt. They don't want to borrow anymore, even though in theory they could go to the bank and say, look, I've got all this equity in my house. Give me another loan so I can buy more houses or so I can buy a new flat screen TV. That's not happening as much. Yeah, well, that's, that's the problem. I mean, the thing is you've become dependent upon that continuing indefinitely. Mm. And this is why conventional economists like the, the Reserve Bank of Australia, which have got to be the most straight uh, unimaginative central bank on the planet um, they they have become reliant upon this growth of credit to keep demand going without even knowing they've done it because their own approach to economic theory leaves out the role of credit they're very much mainstream conventional economic thinkers so they think this is all very good you know people are stabilizing behavior that's going to help now you've become dependent upon that rising level of credit throughout it's not going to continue so when it falls over then you're in deep doo-doo because a huge source of demand you've been relying upon evaporates you can only keep it going by encouraging people back into debt again right. and this has classically been the australian exercise because if you pardon my little computer peeping saying i've just That's done right. some <laughs> some changes here um if you look at the level of credit that Australia had at the start of the global financial crisis, the level of uh, of, of uh, total private debt, it was about 180% of GDP. Now it's about 210%. Right. So, that's, so can, we're now I, more, more levered. I can understand why that's bad for the economy, but how does it mm. hit the banks? What, yeah. what does that the sudden uh, drop in demand for credit, um, mm. how does that hit the banks so hard that they, okay. you know, that they face collapse? The main the, the, When you've got something like a, like a housing structure, a uh, housing market without uh, collateralised debt obligations and nonsense like that behind it. And Australia doesn't have as many of the, anything like what America had on that front, not so many securitised loans. Then the fall in the assets doesn't have the direct impact upon the banks because the, they don't actually own uh, instruments which are, which, whose value is based on the value of housing. Because the, the, the real reason it was so dramatic in America was a lot of the assets they had were levered on the value of the housing sector. So when the housing sector collapsed, those those uh, securitised loans they'd purchased became worthless and their asset side collapsed. In Australia's case, it's going to rely upon an increase in bad debts because as soon as you have um, a fall in the red level of credit, there's a fall in employment and in and capital gains as well. Many people who've been attempting to service their debts on that basis can no longer do it. So you get a rapid increase in bad debts. And then with the bad debts being written off, the banks have to use their equity to cover that. So uh, every every bad debt provision you're forced to make means you've got to re- use your equity to do that. 
And as you do that, you can get to the stage where you're quite fragile yeah. and you're forced to borrow further. And at some point, if you get negative equity, then you're out of business. And that's when the Reserve Bank goes into panic mode and tries to rescue the banks, of course. Right. OK. Uh, which the Reserve Bank can do, of course. A different situation in in, uh, in Europe where the European community is not too happy about the idea uh, of central banks or governments bailing out banks. So let's have a look at the situation in Italy, because I think it's different there, isn't it? There's a there's a we, we hear that Italian banks really are on the verge of collapse. So they're holding a lot of um, bad debt or, or non-productive debt. It's not housing that's, uh, that's driving that situation in Italy, though, is it? No, Italy is more, much more dependent upon corporate debt. And this, it's, this is the fascinating thing, looking at the data, the, uh, the wonderful uh, Bank of International Settlements, the only international organisation I have a lot of time for, has done the numbers for 40-plus countries across the world. That's been the basis of the, of the arguments I'm putting forward in my new book. And when you look at the level of uh, private debt in Italy, it's below what I regard as the trigger level, which causes a crisis, which is more than 1.5 times GDP. But if you drill down and take a look at where is that debt, a vast majority of it is in the corporate sector. So uh, private household debt in Italy is only about about between 40 and 45 percent of GDP. Total debt's about 125, 130 percent. The remainder is corporate debt. And what this has meant is that corporations hit the wall when the global financial crisis hit in Italy. They were not doing particularly well between the uh, the start of the euro and the global financial crisis itself. But they hit a wall and in the sense that they uh, leave it as they want to be and they're now attempting to de-lever. But because they're deleveraging, they're not investing. Because they're not investing, you've got a very stagnant economy. So looking at the, just to give you an idea of the overall numbers for Italy, uh, it's, it's, had, it's nothing like as geared as, say, France, uh, nothing like as geared as as England, but when the when the euro, euro began, the uh, value of, of of the level of uh, outstanding uh, private debt in Italy was exactly look here, um, only sixty seven percent of GDP. Fast forward to where they are uh, when the global financial crisis hit, they were at one hundred and ten percent. And they then peaked uh, in the middle of 2013 to about 125%. They're now down to 120 um, So what they're experiencing is the impact of a corporate sector which is not able to borrow and invest rather than the housing sector, which we've seen in the rest of the world where they're overlevered and they collapse. Right. But and, of course, and, and of course, yeah. they haven't got those assets. So as we said before, when the business collapses, the bank loses all of that money. But how did how did they get to that situation? Because surely it's a good sign if there's a high level of uh, of corporate debt, you would have thought, well, that's great. Banks are being borrowing to business. Uh, you would assume that they're borrowing uh, for the reasons of growth. And yet mm. that growth is not happening. So uh, no. I, I guess that's sort of like a macro and an economic question for, for Italy or Italy's place in Europe. Well, it's, it comes out of that explanation I gave a while ago. Debt enables you to do investments you couldn't otherwise do. So that's why people are willing to borrow. But when you at a low level of debt, which is the level you used to have back in the 50s and 60s, that uh, the volatility of credit wasn't a, a worry for the macro economy when it turned negative. But since we've allowed leverage to continue rising all the way through to now, I mean, even in Italy's case, it's gone from 50% of GDP in the 1960 to 120% now. That additional leverage means you're more susceptible to a slowdown in credit. And that's what's going to hit the hit the Italians. And, of course, what we're expecting to happen in Italy is much more dramatic than uh, anything like Lehman Brothers. The whole currency is going to go. 
Right. So you could, get around, thing. you could get around that, though, couldn't you? I mean, the government could say, look, we've got a whole load of businesses here that, uh, that aren't making enough money. There's a danger of uh, banks collapsing. I mean, you could do one of two things. You could say, well, let's wait till the banks collapse and then we'll bail them out. Or you could say, well, let's stop that happening. Let's make those businesses productive. Let's start buying from them. And, uh, and, and the government starts some sort of uh, stimulus measure that involves getting corporate Italy working again. Well, I mean, it, 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 as I've argued for a long time now, the only way out of this crisis is debt write-offs. Mm. Um, and, and we have the capacity to write that debt off because even if the banks do go bankrupt, we've still got the central bank uh, in the countries that actually have a central bank backing them up who can then provide the liquidity they need not to go under. That's the huge part of what the Federal Reserve did back in 2008. And you need it on a gigantic scale if you actually had uh, Italy leaving the, uh, the euro and reinstituting the lira. Um but the real drama is not going to be in Italy if that actually happens. It's going to be in France and Germany because if, if this break happens, and I think it's almost a given, that but I, I certainly don't expect us to be talking about the euro in 2020 except in its aftermath. Uh, so in the next three years, one country in Europe at least is going to leave, probably Italy, almost certainly France if Le Pen wins the election. And when that happens, the French and German banks who are lent, have loans exposure throughout uh, the European Union will find their asset values collapse and they go into negative equity. And that's, you know, the Lehman Brothers will be a tea party compared to what that implies for the European economy. So what about the UK? So we had, uh, obviously, we uh, the Royal Bank of Scotland, we had, we had our own uh, banking collapses here during the global financial crisis. The Royal Bank of Scotland was effectively nationalised. The Bank of England applied its stress test uh, recently to see how banks would cope with a, a house price crash, and the uh, the Royal Bank of Scotland failed. Yeah, and um, I mean that was one of the heavily levered organisations here, of course. And uh, the, I've forgotten who's the guy, the the, the, the uh, much fated lord who everybody thought was magnificent before the bank collapsed and left the country in the lurch. This is such a common such a common pattern, unfortunately. But um, when England has did the, the classic way, it was largely driven by, by corporate, by household debt rather than corporate debt. So it was very, very similar to the slowdown in America. But this time round, um, it's, it, there's actually been a large amount of deleveraging by the British households. So the funny thing is I don't expect to see a domestic crisis uh, in the same sense that there was in um, in America uh, or Europe, England back in 2008, it'll be a different crisis this time round because uh, there's been English debts fallen from about 200% of GDP to about 170%. Uh, that's still very high. It's much higher than Italy, for example. But it's meant that England's already become less dependent upon credit than it was uh, prior to the crisis. And... Uh, it's suffering a fall right now. I mean, if you look at the total level of credit demand in England right now, it's falling from about 15% of GDP at uh, the beginning of 2015 down to about 10% now. So there's a downturn, there's a slowdown hitting here, but it's not from the uh, levels of the financial crisis itself. 
It's like when the financial crisis hit, credit that year in England was worth about 24% of GDP, and it fell down to 4% of GDP before the revival started again. So when now we've turned around again from, say, about 15% down to about 12%. It's still a fall, but it's not as dramatic as it was at the time of the global financial crisis. Right. So why is that? Is that you know, why does it differ from nation to nation? Why isn't Australia following that example, for example? Is it, is it, is it psychological? Is it, is, it, is it cultural? I mean, Australians obviously love to tell themselves that the economy is going so well they can keep on borrowing, whereas the Brits are a little bit more pessimistic. Is it as simple as that? No, because effectively Australia, and, and here I, I really do blame the uh, RBA in Australia, uh, and the government as well, simply encourage people to continue borrowing. Mm. So um, with that, with that part of me, my little computer beeping back there, <laughs> that continuation of borrowing um, has kept the economy going, and it was originally corporate borrowing to finance the, um, uh, what was expected, the never-ending minerals boom. And then when that fell, fell away, the housing sector was invited in by the RBA cutting rates and making the only attractive speculation, speculation not investment, obviously, for the um, superannuants and the baby boomers to be uh, housing rather than, um, than shares. So they piled in there. So with that combination, we kept the, the economy kept on going, but it was massively relied upon credit, and that is now running out. Right. So, so, uh, so out of all no. of those nations, you're not earmarking the UK as necessarily being one of those uh, at the most no. risk of bank collapses. No, but it's not going to be. The, it'll be Canada, Australia, and uh, Korea, and possibly Norway, Sweden, maybe Belgium. There's, there's a range of countries. It's an interesting pattern. It wasn't at all what I expected to see. But those are some of the countries that were exposed. Right. But well, certainly, we for- Australia's we- on the line. We look forward to we look forward to the book. So, just finishing on Europe, then. I mean, the uh, the the big issue, I guess, in Europe is that these banks, I mean, supposedly can't be bailed out. I mean, we are hearing now uh, that Italy is likely to be putting uh, maybe fifteen billion euros into uh, uh, holding up Monte Di Paschi and uh, some of the other banks that are uh, that are struggling. But in theory, I mean, uh, you know, the ECB doesn't like that. It doesn't like the idea of uh, propping up banks. So, in effect. It's off the table. Well, it will be off the cards until the table collapses. <laughs> Which this, could this be next is, year. This could be next year. I mean, Draghi's going to be forced... I mean, he's going to be forced to just pump money on a massive scale to stop the French and German banks folding when the euro folds. So it's going to be an interesting 2017, isn't it? Um, yes, 2016 was dull. But all we got was Donald Trump out of 2016. Dull. Let's yeah. go for something exciting, like the collapse of Europe. <laughs> right, and Draghi probably deserves it, I suspect. I think there'll be a few people with a smug look on their face in Britain. No, crocodile tears are going to be rare, rare from, uh, especially from people like me. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, look, next time I want to talk about uh, survival without growth. Why does the economy need to keep on growing? I think anybody who doesn't study economics, that's a fundamental question. Why do we need growth? We're all, why aren't we happy with what we've got now? We'll talk about that next time. Okay. Until then, hopefully that was useful. Another example, wasn't it, of why debt-fueled economies might just be a bad thing. Uh, That's the Debunking Economics podcast for now. Thanks for subscribing, and we'll be back with that next episode later in the week. That was Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Thanks for listening. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.